morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, and we're really pleased that uh, Dr. Greenhaut is able to uh, modify his schedule and, uh, and attend this morning. We apologize for the technical difficulties we had last, uh, last week. And I'm glad you rejoined this presentation. I think it's going to be very important for, for you to learn uh, what to do with allergic reactions to the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines as we move forward. Obviously, a lot of information coming out. And I'll, in just a minute, I'll ask Dr. Factor to introduce our guest speaker today. A couple of announcements that I have. Uh, the first uh, 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 annual advanced practice provider summit called Keeping Kids Safe will be this Friday, May 21st from 8 o'clock to 2.30 p.m. Uh, you can log in. We'll send you, we'll send you the, the login through the, uh, through the chat so you can actually log in. I think it's going to be very, very important and, and really good. So we don't have Ask the Experts this Friday. We'll come back in, in a couple of weeks. And then, and the reason we'll come back in a couple of weeks is uh, because we, we will be part of the uh, biannual Joint Pediatric Symposium on June 4th with, uh, with our NUVANS partners. And uh, this will be from uh, uh, 8 o'clock to 11.30 a.m. And join us for three uh, lectures. And, two, and one of them is going to be Dr. Shriver at the end with the traditional uh, update on COVID-19. And again, you can also register for that one. Uh, a week from Friday, we will not have uh, a session because of the, of the upcoming holiday. A uh, couple of additional things that I think are important that, that all of you are probably have heard about is that the beginning tomorrow, the state of Connecticut will be under the new masking protocols. And uh, the governor officially announced the new protocols yesterday afternoon, uh, which requires any masking outdoors uh, uh, which does not require any masking outdoors and fully vaccinated individuals no longer, no longer be required to mask indoors with the exception of healthcare facilities uh, and transportation sites like the airport or buses. And uh, so that, that's something that uh, we as a, as a health system will continue to uh, uh, require masking. Uh, certainly we will continue to do that here at Connecticut Children. So that's not changing in our healthcare facilities. Uh, now there are some establishments, including uh, I guess Starbucks and Walmart that would have optional uh, masking as well. Uh, that's going to be very important. Uh, the state is doing much better. The seven-day average positivity rate is 1.4 percent, which is about half where we had it in April, and uh, hopefully we'll get below the 0.8 percent that we had last summer around August, and I think we'll get there uh, very importantly. Uh, so there's still uh, ample opportunity to get vaccinated. Our uh, 12 to 15-year-olds are getting vaccinated here at Connecticut Children's and in other sites throughout the state. And I encourage people to go ahead and get that done. So as a result of that, we need to know what to do with potential allergies. And I think this is going to be a very interesting presentation, scientifically based. And I really appreciate Dr. Greenhut's commitment to teaching us and letting us know how to do, how to do this. I'm going to ask Dr. Factor to introduce our speaker, Jeff. Thank you, Dr. Salazar. Um, it's a pleasure for me to introduce this morning's Grand Round speaker, Dr. Matthew Greenhut. Matt, who has some roots here in Connecticut, specifically in the West Hartford area, I believe, is Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the Allergy Section at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in the Children's Hospital of Colorado, and he's Director of the Food Allergy Research Unit. He's a, a graduate of Tufts University, where he has degrees in biology, clinical psychology, as well as his MD and an MBA. He completed his residency in pediatrics at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center at the Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital, and then performed his allergy and immunology fellowship at the University of Michigan Division of Allergy and Immunology 
And if that wasn't enough letters, he obtained a master's of science, health and healthcare policy at the University of Michigan Rackham School of Graduate Studies. Matt is, uh, is an accomplished writer, researcher, lecturer, and a thought leader in our field, uh, not only as a journal reviewer and in the establishment of numerous practice parameters and guidelines in, in our field. His publications are too numerous to count. He's an expert in myriad of topics, including cost-effectiveness, shared decision-making, food allergy diagnosis, and in particular treatment, which is near and dear to my heart. And on a personal uh, note, um, my observations, Matt is clearly someone who truly thinks outside the box. Today, we'll be discussing a very timely topic, uh, addressing the risk of allergic reactions to the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines uh, and, and evaluate, recommended evaluation and management. I anticipate we're in for most informative and provocative lecture. Matt? Thanks. Good morning. Um, apologies for last week. Uh, I'll take full accountability for that. And um, it, 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 it's a story for another night. Um, anyways, thank you for inviting me back to present. Um, this has been a really interesting year for um, allergists. Um, you know, uh, well, we saw our services sort of decline in terms of, of, of volumes during the pandemic. And then all of a sudden with the vaccine, um, it's been sort of really thrust to the forefront. Um, <clears throat> my area of, of my research career started during the last pandemic. Um, one of my first uh, projects was um, tackling sort of the issue of if, if egg allergy actually made a difference with influenza vaccine. And, and those of you who have been in practice for some time probably remember back to a, a period where your egg allergic kids need to be sent to an allergist and I'm sure Jeff will remember this, but we used to have to test them to egg and then test them to the vaccine and then hold the same vaccine lot because of all these sort of insane practice styles that had been built up. And, and my, my, my first research project was really sort of tackling this on and, and understanding that the excipient in, in that case actually had no bearing and we had been withholding that vaccine or at least making it difficult for them to get. Um, and then flash forward 10 years later, we're back in another pandemic. And I remember waking up um, in mid-December to a flurry of uh, texts one morning um, about these reactions in England. And I thought, oh boy, I'm kind of back to where I started my, my research career. I really not having done a lot with vaccine allergies since about 2013. But here we are. Um, so I'm Matt Greenhut. I um, am at Denver Children's Hospital, or Children's Hospital Colorado, University of Colorado medicine. I run our food allergy program. I'm going to talk to you today about the risk of allergic reactions to SARS-CoV-2 vaccines and the recommended evaluation and management. Um, these are my disclosures. They're, they're numerous. I'm involved in a lot of things, um, and um, I, I, including some commercial enterprises. Nothing that I've done is actually um, related to vaccines. I do have disclosures from a couple of companies that are kicking around stuff, but they're from unrelated areas. Um, Today, the goals are to over to uh, go over the the um, incidents suspected epidemiology and current policy to how we're approaching allergic reactions to these vaccines. Describe some pros and cons of risk mitigation steps to to avoid potential adverse reactions, and then really go over the the trade offs and the risk benefit with um, vaccination and and what we're talking about in terms of 
what the decision point is when you have somebody with the potential for reaction or even how to reaction and the decision points in, in determining what do you do next. Um, half of the lecture is coming from a paper that's accepted with uh, 65 revisions that I put in uh, about a week ago. I will make this slide deck available as soon as the paper is accepted, but just in case I have to change something major in it, I don't anticipate that, but you never know. All right, so away we go. So I updated this slide last night, and as of about 10 o'clock Mountain Time, uh, the Johns Hopkins Global COVID uh, board was reading 163 million infections worldwide and 3.38 million fatalities. SARS-CoV is an estimated global burden of about $11 trillion uh, last year and about $10 trillion more in, in, in this year. And that actually may go up uh, if you wrap some, some new policy into that. Vaccine development began in April of 2020. Uh, and through last night, the thing was reading about 1.47 billion doses administered worldwide. The first vaccine was approved in September of 2020. That's the Gamila vaccine in, in, in Russia, which has had some interesting literature associated with it. Um, and then in November, two vaccines with an mRNA platform were granted an EUA in, in several countries. And then um, the uh, Janssen, the adenovirus vaccine in the U.S. was approved in, in early March with several others in the pipeline. AstraZeneca actually was one of the earlier ones approved elsewhere, not here, and we're actually sending our doses um, outside the country for whatever reason. These vaccines are working pretty well. The stated efficacy is anywhere from between 65 to 95%. Now, that's a relative risk reduction. People need to be careful in reading those numbers, but that those are pretty good. Um, and it, it's pretty good in reducing both severe, uh, severe infection and, and fatalities as well as hospitalization. It's unclear about the um, sort of person-to-person -person transmission, but it's seeming, seemingly looking like that is actually uh, also a benefit of this. All right, so where does an allergist enter into this other than just somebody who can give vaccines? Um, almost immediately, and, and honestly, it was the first day of the approved vaccine use in the UK, which predated the um, US by about 48 to 72 hours. Um, there were immediate reports of, of two persons, healthcare workers, who had what appeared to be pretty severe allergic reactions within the first 500 recipients. Um, while that might not seem like a lot, that, that's actually a very, very high rate within the first day. And both of these individuals ended up receiving epinephrine. Um, and this has not just been limited to the Pfizer product. This is also the Moderna product, um, mainly the mRNA vaccines, also to a limited degree, the adenovirus vaccines as well. But um, <clears throat> through the first week, they, they recorded about 11.1 uh, allergic events, severe allergic events per million um, Pfizer vaccines given and, and 2.5 per million Moderna in the first 14 days prompting a number of precautions and contraindications to go up pretty much everywhere where this was approved. Now, if you look at the data, Pfizer noted about a 0.1 hypersensitivity rate, including anaphylaxis, uh, although there really weren't any cases that I could discern from the EUA, uh, and Moderna a 0.01% uh, with no anaphylaxis. So these are things that they look for, but um, overall, between both vaccines, they gave this to less than 100,000 people. So you might not necessarily see it if it's a very rare event. Um, 
what we've noted is that there's been a self-reported allergy history and in, in particular prior anaphylaxis in a number of, of these individuals who have had reactions uh, so far, um, which means that there might be a slight atopic predilection to that. Um, globally now, the vaccination is probably rightly so contraindicated in anybody who's had a history of a severe reaction to either the vaccine or one of its components. And they're saying, don't, don't give this to somebody who's had a reaction the first time. The issue is, you know, can we and should we really be either vaccinating or revaccinating somebody with such a history um, in, in the face of a pandemic, which really has sort of put a chokehold on the world in, in, in the last year? Um, and that's what we're going to go over. So these are um, a smattering of the contraindications and precautions that have gone up worldwide. Um, red means it's contraindicated. And here you can see the CDC in Europe. Um, this is a couple of allergy societies that have recommended don't give this. The Canadian society is interesting taking a stance and said, well, maybe you can give this. European Allergy Society, World Allergy Society, South Africa Allergy Society, pretty much everybody is saying don't give it um, if you have a reaction to the vaccine or even to an excipient. Um, and then there was some uh, concern over if you've had a reaction to even an unrelated vaccine or parenteral medication where um, you can see it's a little bit more mixed. Um, Non-anaphylactic reactions to the first dose, the CDC and EMEA are still saying no, but everybody else is a little bit uh, more positive on that, at least cautiously. Um, unrelated allergic reactions, not to a medication. So if you have a food allergy or a pollen allergy or whatnot, that seems to be uh, okay around the world. Most of these organizations are recommending consultation with an allergist if you have an event. Um, but you can see um, where there's uh, some source of disagreement is what to do with these patients once they get to the allergist, are we recommending that they be tested or whatnot? Um, and then sort of switching vaccines to a different platform. So if you reacted to an mRNA vaccine, do you, do you give one of the adenovirus ones if it's even available? Um, so that's what we're gonna concentrate in is sort of this, I'm not gonna say gray area, but sort of allergists have worked within this contraindication for years. Um, if you go back long enough, you remember that MMR was contraindicated in people with egg allergy. And so they figured out it wasn't actually egg causing it, it was gelatin um, and then flu vaccine as well. So um, we've been in this space before. We figured out a way to um, maneuver this where we don't have to tell people that they can't get their vaccine, which is really our, our sort of global imperative here, I think, in my opinion. In early January or late December, uh, the group from Mass General Brigham and Vanderbilt published their institutional approach to how they are um, approaching this. This has been misconstrued as actual official guidance from the allergy professional organizations. It, it's not, it, it, it's their opinion. Uh, there is no official guidance yet. Um, but what they're recommending is that a couple of questions be asked. You have a history of a severe reaction to some of these medications. Um, do you have a history of an immediate reaction to two key excipients in the vaccine, either polyethylene glycol or polysorbate, which are things that are in more products than you care to realize, but um, in some people have, have caused potential allergic reactions. Anyways, if you have um, one of these questions, one of these four questions answered, yes, you're considered high risk. And what they recommend is that you're seen by an allergist and you're skin tested to these, um, to, to these uh, items first. And if the skin testing is negative, um, then you can go on and get this cautiously. 
Um, if your skin test is positive, they're recommending actually the vaccine be withheld, which is quite an unusual step. And I'll show you that in a couple of slides. We don't do that with any other vaccine. Um, for medium risk, um, you know, if, if, if there's sort of an unrelated history, then you can get this with um, this 30 minute observation period. And if you're low risk, you know, food allergy or something else, you can go ahead and get this with a 15 minute standard observation. Um, this is based still largely on unproven speculation that PEG and polysorbate as the two major excipients in the vaccine are sort of the big bad in this situation and are causing these reactions. I will state as of last night, and if something was published this morning that I don't know about, I apologize, but there's zero proof and zero evidence other than rampant speculation that this allergen is causing any reaction in these patients, which makes for an interesting situation where if you look at this pathway here, if you're positive on the skin testing, which would infer that you're making IgE against these products, they're saying don't give this. Um, and, 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 and that's really where I think we can do better and we can prevent people from not getting the vaccine. Um, and we should be very, very careful in terms of our approach. So um, they've updated this based on their experience. Now 472 employees with this high-risk history. Um, they've run them through their, um, their algorithm. Um, 209 were recommended for a 15-minute observation based on a low risk, 241 based on a moderate risk, and then 22 were identified for skin testing, of which 16 actually went to the allergist and got this. 15 were negative, 13 opted for vaccination, all which were tolerated, two still are awaiting this. One who was skin test positive was shunted to the Janssen issue. So this is how a large institution is handling it. And this is one way to do it. Um, and the differences between the April and December guidance is, is this sort of option for shared decision-making and skin testing versus receiving the vaccine, which really should have been there up front. There's no excuse not to ask your patients what they want and what their goals and preferences are, as opposed to saying here, this is what we're gonna do. Um, but, but this is the published guidance. And this is what a lot of allergists are, are doing across the country. So if you have one of these patients and you send them to us and you'll start to see this now with the EUA down to 12, um, you know, this is one way that it may be handled. But, you know, the, the issue here is, is what really should we be doing? I mean, we have a pandemic and really it seems like the key to getting back to normal life is building herd immunity, whatever that might be. If you ask 100 allergists and immunologists, they'll give you 100 different definitions. If you ask some ID folks and other public health folks, I mean, people talk about herd immunity and it's been battered around like volleyball. Um, I, I'm not sure any of us really understand truly what it means, but it's this sort of concept where enough people have immunity to this where... Um, the infection won't propagate at the same rate. To build herd immunity, either a number of people have to get infected, which is probably not the recommended strategy or not the optimal strategy, or we have a vaccine. Um, so we want as many people as, as humanly possible around the world to be vaccinated so we can move on from this. However, we don't want to put up barriers to make this too difficult for people to get vaccinated because you know it's human behavior. If, if you you know, if it's too hard to get, you're just simply not going to get it. Or if we start sort of giving you hurdles like different doctors to go to, um, you also might not get it. Our issues are identifying people who might be at increased risk of actually reacting to one of these vaccines. Um, the other thing is actually clear identification of what's happening. Just because the CDC reports it as allergic, right, that's coming from the VARES, which is a self-report passive um, 
system that's that's meant to be sensitive to issues, but not specific to actually what's causing them. There's good cause to believe that a lot of the reactions that have been reported through this might not actually be what we would consider truly allergic, or at least involving a mast cell, which is really uh, what we can deal with. Um, we don't know what's actually causing these reactions. We don't know what the right pathway is for even you know, applying risk assessment and mitigation. Um, we do have precedent for how similar situations with vaccine allergy have been handled historically. I will tell you, they, they really don't involve telling somebody, no, you can't get it. They might involve some weird and wonderful ways uh, of coming to our office with graded challenges, desensitization. We usually have found a way to give this to somebody, but in the end of the day, they, they've walked away with the vaccine and we haven't told them no because of a positive skin test. Um, and that raises an issue. Is it really ethical not to vaccinate somebody who wants the vaccine given the extent of the pandemic when what the patient wants is the vaccine and we have a way to do this in our, in our office. And, and honestly, it, it may end up with us giving somebody epinephrine, but you know, I'm gonna ask you to think about what's the worst situation, you know, letting them go out into the wild to potentially get coronavirus or to come to our office and maybe get treated for an allergic reaction. You know, at the end of the day, what is what is the better situation for the patient there? Um, and what we're going to try to define here is an optimal approach in, in terms of understanding the benefits and the risks and what the patient wants in that situation. So one way to look at the value of vaccination versus not vaccination is through a model of cost effectiveness. And the current options are basically to defer based on a history of either a, a reaction to the vaccine or the excipient in the past, do additional wait time, um, do graded dosing, or uh, you know, there's my solution, which I've been doing at my institution, just giving them and waiting to see what happens and treating whoever um, ends up uh, needing treatment. Um, the question is, can we look at this through a filter of applying maximal health and economic value? We published, uh, my, my two co-authors and I, Marcus Shaker at Dartmouth, Alyssa Abrams at University of Manitoba and myself, we published a cost-effectiveness model of looking at just sort of universally vaccinating everybody versus restricting the vaccine to these crazy histories of anaphylaxis or whatnot. Um, and we wanted to know where is the edge of the envelope to where it would not make um, health and economic sense to just sort of push ahead. And what we found out was um, basically until there's a rate of 8,000 anaphylactic episodes per million vaccine doses, it is actually not cost effective to do anything but just keep foraging ahead. And this universal model where we just took all comers and we kept vaccinating them and just dealt with the ramifications of any allergic reaction in, in this simulation saved $503 million and, and about 7,500 lives versus restricting vaccination in a single year using a threshold of $10 million per death prevented, which is a standard sort of, what that's the value of a life. Um, that's what makes it cost effective. That's pretty macabre. Um, but some actuaries um, often based in Connecticut um, have uh, gone out and, and set this rate for sort of what's cost effective in terms of uh, cost of life. So basically at a threshold of 8,000 events per million, then it becomes cost effective to start switching strategies and doing crazy things to restrict vaccine access. We also looked at this sort of 30 minute versus 15 minute wait time. And we found that that isn't even cost effective until there's an anaphylaxis rate uh, above 6% and a fatality rate from that anaphylaxis above 1%. So 
Um, a decision to defer vaccine based on detection of polyethylene glycol or polysorbate sensitization actually can have rather serious health consequences, given that this is uh, an illness that has been killing a lot of people. And if it doesn't kill you and you get it, you have at least a decent risk of it making you very, very sick. Um, I get criticized a lot for dealing with fatality rates as opposed to morbidity rates. Um, the morbidity, frankly, sucks from this. It's not something that I think anybody wants to get. So um, overall, the risk stratification really isn't cost effective uh, when you're dealing with sort of um, lower rates of anaphylaxis. Um, and, and, you know, we published this. This is not necessarily been well accepted within the field, but you know, this is math and nobody's presented an alternative model that has shown that we're wrong. And, and eventually I think people will come around to this. Um, and here are your decision points. You know, um, when you have low anaphylaxis rates, low rates of hospitalization and low fatality, um, maybe it becomes a, a little bit more um, acceptable in terms of a cost benefit analysis to um, restrict the vaccine. But when you have high rates of disease propagation, you probably don't have that luxury. Um, and, and your trade-off is, do I trust the allergist giving this vaccine to be able to treat anaphylaxis? And your answer is you should, that's what we do all day. Um, versus do I want this person to go out into society and take their risk of possible hospitalization from COVID or fatality? Um, and this is a nice sort of a break even. I apologize that the, the, the print on the axes are a little bit uh, small, but you can look at this in, in terms of, of, of a pure economic value. Basically, there's a break even when the risk versus the risk of fatality, the risk of uh, having anaphylaxis versus the risk of that being fatal. Uh, and you can just walk this down a line to where it makes sense to do one strategy versus the other. Um, it, it's a lot of math, but basically what we're saying is that what, what has been proposed by the Mass General Group really has no basis in cost effectiveness. It, it's not a value-based strategy. It's not going to bring you anywhere but increase the pool of people who aren't being vaccinated. And there's not really good justification for that. What about somebody who's had a reaction and then comes to your office seeking, you know, what do I do about the next one? Um, and we still have limited knowledge about exactly what's happening with the first dose to effectively answer this. Are, are these IgE-mediated reactions, meaning are they following an allergic mechanism? It's unclear and it's looking probably not. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that. What about, what, what do we know what happens with the second dose? Well, there's actually been some limited data published that shows that most tolerate this if they're given the opportunity. The problem is, is that a lot of people just are gun shy and are not doing this here. Do we even need the second dose? That's an interesting, um, that's an interesting actual uh, discussion. In some countries, they've rationed this. Like in the UK, you're waiting months to get that second dose. And, um, you know, it's probably best to get it. But we can actually make a theoretical model and look at the um, rate of protection that you're going to get, or what we call the durable immunity, lasting at least a year until you effectively get your next booster. Um, versus what that second dose adds versus the theoretical risk of anaphylaxis on readministration. And in an allergic sense, we can just sort of make a nice table here and understand if it's worth getting that second dose if, you're, if, you, if you've been vaccinated the first time and had a reaction. And here, based on a high rate of protection from that, so the first dose brings you 90% efficacy and you're really only getting a small kick from that second dose you are going to accept a much lower threshold of having anaphylaxis in terms of saying, yeah, go ahead and get that. But 
if you're down here and you know that that second dose is really very meaningful, then you're going to accept a lot higher rates of uh, anaphylaxis in terms of the trade-off that your patient should want to make. Now, again, I'm dealing with all kinds of bizarre things. And you're probably sitting here like, who the hell is this guy? And why is he so keen on sort of this, this financial model of looking at this? And the issue is, is that this, this is how policymakers look at things. They're going to look at sort of what brings the most benefits to the most people. And they're going to look at things like sort of accumulated risk. They're going to look at cost benefit. And this is how decisions are made. Now, I'm not saying go out and bring this table for your patients, but this is a way to look at in the worst case scenario, where does the edge of the envelope sit in terms of should I allow somebody to go unprotected or partially protected, or should I really send them to an allergist and should we take that risk that they're going to react to their next dose? And I'm suggesting that that risk really isn't that high and, and we have models of dealing with this. So, you know, our strategy should be have these patients come to our office and, and, and let's vaccinate them because I think we can handle this risk and it's not that great and we want people to get maximal protection. Now, looking at what's on the actual books in terms of our policy, um, and this is a blurry picture, I, I, I apologize that. So our practice parameter, and with disclosure, I, I wrote this, and this is written right after the last pandemic, um, in, in mostly in relation to egg allergy. What happens when you have somebody with a history of either an excipient allergy or vaccine allergy? Well, bring them to your office, or to our office, test them to the excipients of the vaccine. If it's negative, just go ahead and give them a single straight dose and observe them for 30 minutes. If it's positive, then break this up into either two or more doses, but you're still giving it to them. This was really the big change after all the data came out with influenza and egg allergy. Um, it does involve testing the non-standardized agents. And um, a lot of this excipient testing, um, it's not like when you send somebody to our office and, and you want testing for ragweed or peanut or egg, we know that there's uh, an appreciable amount of protein in that extract. And we know that the positive test means that you're detecting IgE to, um, to that substance that we put on. And the negative test is saying with 95% certainty, IgE is not there, which is a really good state to be in. Um, these non-standardized tests really tell you that we're not sure what the positive mark means, but we know that the, the negative mark means that it's not gonna irritate your skin and give you a false positive. And, and that's a, not quite the same thing as when you send for other things. But you know, we, we, we've dealt with this type of testing for years and it's, it's very well accepted within the field. This is what a lot of allergists like to do. Um, and it's the best that we can do for now because these are really non-standardized agents. But anyway, so we can test and you know, positive or negative, we have a way of administering the vaccine. And this is what's driving me nuts about the recommended approach now from this other group is, is that they're saying, ignore this and don't give the vaccine because we think that there's such a big risk of anaphylaxis. Well, we, we deal with that risk in our office all the time. And there's really no excuse for us to not be giving this because we, we do things. Like if you go to Jeff's office, Jeff's got thousands of kids that have been going through peanut oil immunotherapy and other things where we're hedging that risk every day or any other allergist is, 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 is doing allergy shots where we're hedging that risk of giving somebody back something that they're allergic to in a controlled fashion. So really anaphylaxis and excipient sensitization or allergy should not be absolute contraindications to our approach because we do this in every other, um, every other facet of our practice every day. So we do have an approach on the books. I just don't know why we've punted this to the side for now. And it's, it's, it, it's really puzzling. 
anyway, um, so before we transition in, in, into the latest evidence, you know, the equi equitability and decision-making here, do we have an optimal choice with these patients? You know, um, on the one hand, their, their, their risk is to have an allergic reaction from the vaccine. On the other hand, it's to go unvaccinated. Those are not really good choices. You, you wouldn't want that. That's what we're dealt with, but you know, neither of them are ideal. And I'll stipulate that up front, that both of these options really kind of lead down paths that you wouldn't want to deal with if you didn't have to. But the issue is, do we have certainty that these reactions are actually allergic and it's not happening through some other mechanism, a pseudo-allergic reaction, which means that it's not an antibody that's preformed, but sometimes those mast cells just get directly degranulated. And anytime you push vancomycin or contrast media too fast, that's actually what happens. They're not allergic to that. You've just irritated the mast cells and you can control that. Or is it idiosyncratic? And these are just random events that we're tracking. And, and because we're so keyed in on it, we, we, we've had a number of reports. So we don't actually know what's happening. You know, and we need to balance that against how high is their risk in the community to contract COVID? Um, why is this any less manageable than immunotherapy reactions? We're trained to treat this. And if we're running from the risk of anaphylaxis, that, that's not good. We're supposed to be the fail safe against that. Why would our past risk mitigation methods, you know, even in the worst case scenario, not be expected to work here? And again, what, what risk is really worse, reacting to the vaccine or being vulnerable to COVID? And who should have the right to make that decision? Should it be the patient or should it be the physician or, 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 or the APP who's, who's, who's in charge of, of giving that vaccine? And what we concluded is we really don't know what we're doing here and we need a systematic approach to at least synthesize the evidence of risk to help guide management decisions. So, the next half is, and I, I ask you, um, this is still, this is the paper that's accepted with a lot of revisions and we, we anticipate that it should be accepted any day now. Um, this is, has not been out there. We didn't put it on a preprint or anything like that, but this is what we are recommending as the um, approach moving forward. And it's at least a systematic approach to evidence synthesis to understand what should you be doing, both in the person who's not reacted to anything but might have a baseline risk, and then in the patient who has reacted to something. So I apologize for a veritable overflow of information here. Um, you know, this is, is, is full of lots of recommendations, some of which you can take and some of which you can consider. Um, what we've done over the last two and a half months since these reports have come out and the CDC has really said don't vaccinate certain individuals is convene a multidisciplinary group of international experts uh, in anaphylaxis, um, infectious disease, emergency medicine, and, and frontline clinicians to systematically develop recommendations on how to approach this. We've chosen the GRADE methodology, which in, we'll go over GRADE in the, in the next two or three slides, but GRADE is a way of taking a bunch of evidence, synthesizing it, and being able to come up with an intelligent rating about how certain you should be on the decision-making based on this evidence. And then we convened a large Delphi panel to look at the recommendations and make sure that there was good consensus on this and to really do this in an iterative fashion to make sure that you know this wasn't sort of led by a small group, that the whole group was really representative here. We focused on the risk of reaction from the vaccine or vaccine excipient and the evidence supporting the precision of testing to excipients because that seems to be the main thing that people wanna do in this. And there are two themes for recommendations for individuals before their initial vaccination who have no history 
uh, of anything. And then individuals before their initial uh, or additional, react, uh, additional uh, vaccination who might have had a, a past issue with an excipient or um, reacted to the vaccine. So we've got four questions, 11 recommendations, and three meta-analyses that were done. And um, I killed the whole weekend doing this, ripping through about 1,500 articles with the NCAA tournament on in the background. It's um, a lot of fun. Um, anyways, but we needed to do this fast. And that's the danger is that you're dealing with new and evolving information and you have to integrate this very quickly. Um, you know, if we didn't get this right, we will address it. And there's something called a living systematic review at, at the British Medical Journal that allows you to sort of update this process as more information gets there. Um, but in the end, any analysis of this uh, sort is only as good as the data sources that you have to deal with. Um, so anyways, so what is grade? Um, so grade is the grading of recommendation, assessment, development, evaluation. It's a system developed up at, up at McMaster in, in Hamilton, Ontario, um, as a way of providing a transparent, sensible, and common approach to, trans, uh, to translating evidence synthesis um, and, and making strength of recommendations for clinical guidelines. It, it is the worldwide standard, but it's not the only way to do this. There are older systems that are probably equally as good. Um, Basically, what this is trying to do is, is take the practical problem that um, reviews and guidelines make essential, sometimes, but not sufficient information for making well-informed decisions. People draw conclusions about the quality of evidence, which guides um, decisions. This is trying to help give critical appraisal of these judgments and help improve sort of the communication and really the, the practical translation to your patient. There are a couple of, of parameters that are used. So the first part of a grade recommendation is the strength of recommendation. And this can either be strong or conditional. You rarely see strong just because honestly, the quality of evidence out there is not great for most concepts. And, and that's a sobering fact. Um, but when you see a strong, a strong recommendation, most people will prefer this recommendation and only a small portion would not. And really things like decision aids aren't going to sway the decision-making of values and preferences here uh, when you have a strong thing. It's really most rational people would do this. Conditional means the majority of individuals might prefer it, but some may not. And this is really where preference sensitive care comes into choice, where there are a number of different routes that could be taken. And the best choice is really based on the uh, values and preferences of the patient. The second part of the recommendation rates the quality of the recommendation. It goes from anywhere from high to very low. And that talks about sort of the certainty of the evidence, basically how good was the stuff that you put in, in, in terms of formulating this. And this is how you compensate for sort of poor quality evidence. There are a couple of parameters that go into that, sort of a risk of bias, inconsistency in terms of, you know, you just have wildly divergent studies that are, are being sort of uh, thrown into the mix here. Indirectness is, is the, are the number, are the, the studies that you're looking at, are they really even directly rate, rating what you're trying to assess in terms of head to head, you know, uh, and this actually will, will, will be a big issue in, in, in one of the questions that we asked in terms of indirectness of the analysis. Imprecision, it, it comes with optimal information size. Do you have enough people that have been run through this to even make an intelligent assessment of it? So grade is a nice way of integrating all of that in terms of the estimate. This is a sample grade profile. The question here, when you're drunk at 2 a.m., are you going to satisfy your hunger more with pizza than tacos? This is just a sample question. Here you have your meta-analyses, the number of events. You can look at sort of 
your risk reduction. Um, most of these are informed by a meta-analysis. Obviously, crossing one is not good, but the bulk of the effects here um, seem to be um, in favor of, of, of pizza in that. And here you have your assessment in terms of, you know, the number of observations that go into this, the risk of bias being very serious in terms of the type of studies, um, the inconsistency in the types of studies that were evaluating this, into, uh, the indirectness, the imprecision. Anyways, you get a low rating and it gives you sort of a pooled odds ratio and then sort of an anticipated absolute effect. A lot of this is gobbledygook, but when you look at the, the, the things, this is, this is what, what grade tends to do, is it gives you sort of a certainty uh, assessment here. In the sense, while the estimate is pointing in the direction of pizza, it's doing so with very low certainty. And again, it's pointing to preference sensitive care to satisfy your hunger late at night. When you have grade versus Yelp, the practicality of these estimates, all guidelines leave a lot to be desired, but they do clarify a few things. You can get a certainty of evidence for any strategy reflected by the strength of the recommendation. Where there are gaps, those tend to be disclosed in the grade uh, process. Um, there are very few scenarios where something is strongly for or strongly against, but they do exist. Um, the question is, you know, what happens when you have less than 100% certain evidence? And sometimes that's hard to rectify in terms of how we practice. So basically, in the end, this gives you a way to look at the quality of the decision that you could make, but doesn't often give you a blanket yes or no and what to do. And that's just important in moving forward with this. So um, I come back to now what I actually came here to talk to you about. Um, our first question what is the risk of a severe allergic reaction, including anaphylaxis from one of these vaccines and somebody who has no history of a severe allergic reaction to one of these vaccines or an excipient prior? So person off the street, what is their baseline history and, and, and risk of a reaction? So what we're recommending here for patients with no history of any previous event to the vaccine or vaccine excipients, the risk is very rare and very rare is defined by greater than uh, less than one in 10,000. Um, and we recommend vaccination over no vaccination based on this risk. This is a strong recommendation with high certainty of evidence. Um, and I'll show you why in a second. We literally have millions of data points suggesting that this is very unlikely to happen. The second recommendation in somebody with a history of a severe allergic reaction, including anaphylaxis unrelated to the vaccine, um, do we recommend additional observation time? Um, and, and the issue here is, no, we, we actually recommend against prolonged observation time uh, in those with, uh, without a history of, of, of severe reaction. Although that's a conditional uh, recommendation, we have low certainty of evidence. Basically, the issue comes down to this. So anaphylaxis these vaccines is actually shockingly rare. Um, in the pooled data that the CDC has released through um, late January, we had 50 cases in 9.9 .9 million doses of Pfizer given and 21 in 7.5 million doses of Moderna given. It's a total, and there were a total of 133 non-anaphylactic uh, allergic reactions. That's 22.1 per million doses given. The pooled rate is very, very low. The problem is, is what's the source that you're looking at? So there are adjudicated and non-adjudicated rates. Adjudicated rates means somebody actually looked through this and said, are the symptoms that are being reported for this case consistent with anaphylaxis? Now we can't go and interrogate those patients and ask them sort of what happened. So roughly, does this look plausibly consistent with anaphylaxis or not? Um, and when you look at that, the adjudicated rate across the world from um, a number of sources from international data is 7.91 
cases of anaphylaxis per million from 15 data reporting sources. That's really, really low. For comparison, the rate of conjoined twins is about five per million uh, deliveries. So not something that you're necessarily worried about with every pregnancy, but certainly something that could happen in the range of plausibility. When you look at non-adjudicated rates, it actually creeps up to 33.5 per million. And that's still less than half of the expected rate that any of you who are golfers would have of getting a hole in one in your life on a par three. So again, something that could happen, but not necessarily something that you're betting on happening. We looked at trials that had greater than 20,000 participants um, and government reports with greater than 500,000 sources. So we're looking at millions of doses here. And that's why we can make a really strong recommendation there because the massive amount of data really buoys that. And when we look here, um, our certainty is very, very high. Uh, and we're looking at over 57 million individuals and we're looking at 674 million event, uh, 674 events pooled worldwide. And that's why we can be very, very certain there that the baseline risk is actually really, really low, which is a little bit higher than the expected rate with, uh, with other vaccines. It's about 1.5 per million doses uh, pooled with other vaccines. And again, we're cleaning up the data. Part of the issue here is that, again, we don't exactly know what we're looking at. We're looking at a lot of passive data. Now, when you look at vaccine anaphylaxis, they use this criteria called the Brighton Collaboration. Um, that is um, one way of looking at it, but it's not the way that allergists look at it. And essentially, when we rate it with the allergy uh, criteria that we're used to using, um, that rate of anaphylaxis comes down. So um, when you apply different systems, you could get different rates. And that just goes to show that we don't necessarily agree on what we're looking at. But overall, the far is, is far more likely that, that this is being sort of uh, overblown in terms of the number of events being reported. And it's probably not as big of an issue as being made, but it still can happen to your patient. All right, question two. In patients without a history of a severe allergic reaction, should you be skin testing these patients before you vaccinate them? Our recommendation here is clearly no, you should not be. We recommend against, vaccinate, uh, uh, against vaccine or vaccine excipient skin testing in persons who have no history of a problem to either the excipient or the vaccine uh, to help predict the rare individual who will have a severe allergic reaction. Now, this is based on lower certainty of evidence, but it's still a strong recommendation. So in your patients who have no sort of uh, history of, of, of a reaction or, or, or a problem, you don't need to send them to us to do skin testing. Um, <clears throat> in patients with a, a history of, um, in, in somebody who has had um, a potential history of um, a reaction to this, um, that's where this changes a little bit. So here, if you have somebody who reacted on dose one or who has had a history of a severe reaction to PEG or polysorbate or a medication that may or might have contained that, we're still um, suggesting against testing these patients, but we're saying in a research setting, this might be acceptable. Now this is conditional and this has low certainty of evidence. And this is really where shared decision-making at the level of the allergist needs to come in. So. This patient should still be referred to us, but once they get to us, that's really where a lot of things can happen. So the next question is, what's the risk posed by uh, the experience? So um, 
mRNA vaccines have not used these same historical excipients, things like neomycin or egg or whatnot. The really only two things in there are PEG and polysorbate and then a bunch of other things plus the mRNA itself. When looking at rates of um, reactions to PEG-containing products, there have been about 53 probable cases reported to the FDA over about a 25-year period. Um, that's 0.012 cases per million person years. That's not a very big thing. It's happening about four cases per year. Looking across a Canadian um, similar thing, they, they have a little bit of a higher incidence, but a looser rate, uh, a looser definition of what they're looking at and about 42.6 cases per million person years. That's still not a lot. So overall, not a lot of people have PEG or polysorbate allergy at baseline, but there are people out there who have it. Um, and that means that somewhere out there, somebody plausibly is at risk. But again, you know, so what's in the vaccine itself? Um, and you can look and see. So all the adenovirus vaccines have polysorbate. All the mRNA vaccines have PEG. PEG and polysorbate are loosely related, but not entirely related. It's, it's less than sort of the relationship between a penicillin and a cephalosporin. Um, you know, there's some theoretical risk, but there's really not a, a huge um, risk of cross-reactivity. So this is largely theory that has led to this contraindication and, and that can lead you into trouble. So what's your baseline um, pooled allergy prevalence of having polyethylene glycol allergy? Well, the pooled prevalence looking at two data reports is 0.15 cases per million person years. So it's there, but it's, it's barely registered. Um, and it's not really a huge risk. What about what's your risk? Uh, so what's the sensitivity then of actually testing somebody to PEG or polysorbate um, if they come into our office? And what do we do for that? Essentially, we take Miralax, we dilute it down and put it on your skin. Um, the pooled sensitivity looking across about 15 studies um, using a very loose definition of what testing construed and what a positive test construed is about 58% sensitive and 99% specific. So it's not irritating. So you're not gonna get a lot of false positives, but you have about a 58% uh, chance of finding a positive test in somebody who you actually think has this allergy. That's not very good. That's not a good test. These, if you look at actually the numbers that have been put into this, um, these are a bunch of case reports cobbled together, and that's the best we could do for this analysis. So to say we should be doing widespread testing to this with something that in the best case scenario has 58% sensitivity. And by the way, this is just the gold standard of this is just a positive test. They're not actually re-challenging these individuals to make sure that, that the test is, is linked to a positive uh, report. You know, this is a derivative of a derivative and, and, and really just a mess. Um, when you look at this, we have a very, very low certainty of, of evidence here supporting this recommendation because this is just crap data uh, going in um, for both the reported history of, of polysorbate and PEG allergy, as well as um, the testing here. So um, people are testing, but again, I don't think this is reliable. They're getting a lot of negative tests and they're feeling reassured by the negative test. I would actually recommend you should probably be more frightened by the negative test because if it's in somebody who you really think has PEG or polysorbate allergy, you can't tell if they're truly negative or if the test is just bad and that's not a good place to be. And again, with peanut allergy, the problem is quite the opposite. The test picks up way too many people who probably don't have peanut allergy and you get a lot of false positives. It's, it's way too sensitive, but 58% sensitivity is, is not a good zone to be in. 
there have been some scattered reports of vaccine and, and PEG testing um, that have shown by and large across these tests is that um, most people who are tested to um, PEG or the vaccine are actually not coming up positive and are tolerating readministration. There's this one crazy case report out of the UK um, where one of the initial reactors in, in that batch that kickstarted all of this mess um, went for her um, testing. They, so in the vaccine, the PEG that's in there is PEG 2000. PEG um, has a number of different molecular weights that can come with this. Um, she was not positive to PEG 2000, but was positive to uh, a PEG in a much higher molecular weight. And actually what they said is developed uh, anaphylaxis or what they thought was anaphylaxis during the skin testing. And they're using that as evidence of saying, see, she reacted to PEG in the vaccine because she had anaphylaxis to PEG skin testing. That's a way of looking at that. That's not necessarily the way I would look at that, but that's what they're saying. This is possibly the only sort of direct one-to-one -one case here of, 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 of cause and effect, and, 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 and that's it. And there's a lot more saying that it, 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 it's not there. I know we're, we're, we're butting up on the hour here. We've got a couple more slides to go through. But anyways, the upshot here is that so, so far, we don't think that you're at high risk of having anaphylaxis to the vaccine at baseline. And we don't see great utility in testing because the tests are not very sensitive in terms of, of looking at what you want. So um, those are two big holes in sort of the recommended pathways that people have been doing. So what do you do now for somebody who has had an immediate allergic reaction to the first dose who's coming to you for evaluation? So we've got a couple of common sense recommendations here. So our first recommendation is we recommend a shared decision-making paradigm in favor of vaccination, looking at a number of different ways to, to evaluate these patients. Um, <clears throat> so we, we think that these patients should be referred to an allergist and in some settings um, where there are limited resources, you know, the, the next best person might have to assess that. Um, but we recommend allergist uh, referral. Um, we recommend um, sort of strong attempts at confirming the past medical history to make sure that they really had what you think they had before you make any further decisions. Um, we recommend um, that, um, you know, really you should be doing everything you can to vaccinate these patients over not vaccinating them and, and looking at a number of different ways to, to, to do that. If you're going to give this vaccine, it should be done in a facility capable of treating anaphylaxis. This, this is the most self-obvious one, I think, of all of them. We don't recommend that you should pre-treat these patients with an antihistamine or steroids. Um, there's actually some theoretical risk that steroids could um, potentially dampen the immune response after you give it and be self-defeating there. Um, but we're not recommending pre-medication. And what we are recommending is that whatever is being done, research this. This needs to be done on a global basis. Um, and, and really um, withholding the vaccine in these patients who you think are at risk is, is really hindering that. So um, we need research studies um, that are evaluating this under sort of our, our, our conditions here of risk to understand, is this really, really necessary? We need to know, should you be withholding? Should you be mixing the platforms? Just a lot of unknowns and that's a research recommendation. I will send you a summary table of all these because I'm whipping through these. But essentially, here's what we are breaking down and here's what it comes down to. None of the choices are optimal. One choice when you go this way, um, while you maximize sort of the risk of a reaction, 
you are um, maximizing or you're decreasing the risk of an infection. And that's what you're trading off. And it really goes in, in, in one direction or the other year. So your choices, give the vaccine, uh, and this is the shared decision-making that you do with your patient, give the vaccine without any observation time, right? You just do it 15 minutes and whatever happens, happens. Your patient is fully immunized. Um, this may make your staff very nervous because there's a risk of reaction. You may end up having to treat that patient, but at the end of the day, they walk out immunized. You can also give it with additional observation time. Again, now you're putting a little hedge to it. The 30 minutes means that you're going to probably catch most of the things um, that, that might happen. Again, you're probably not making your staff any more, um, uh, any less nervous here. Um, but again, this is most consistent with our vaccine practice parameter. Or you give the vaccine and you give it as a graded challenge. So now you're doing things against the EUA. You're taking the vaccine, you're diluting it, you're manipulating it more. There's some school of thought that actually more manipulation releases naked mRNA, which might directly stimulate the mast cells and cause those sort of contrast-like or vancomycin-like reactions. And, and that's what we're seeing. I don't know about that, but people are doing this and this is one way to look at it. So again, you're giving as a graded challenge in our office. You've got a fully immunized patient. We don't know if the efficacy of doing a graded challenge reduces it or not, but it, it's, a, it's a reasonable alternative. A lot of allergists are, are comfortable with this because this is the approach in the practice parameter right now. Now, the, the higher level discussion is, is this really necessary and, and is breaking this up into a small dose and a big dose really going to prevent a reaction if one was going to happen? Harder question to answer. Um, again, this requires the staff being ready to still treat somebody. And then sort of the least preferred option in my opinion, but it might be right for you and your patient, defer vaccination until we have more information. Check the antibody whatever that means at this point. And I, I don't know what that means. I'm an immunologist and I couldn't tell you what an antibody titer to this vaccine means in terms of protection at this moment in time. We don't know about the single dose efficacy. It may be enough, it may not be. Some of the Israeli data is suggesting that it, it probably is. And there was some, there was one small study of about 2000 patients uh, that the CDC rela uh, released that showed that you at least are getting 75% efficacy here. Um, deferral is what is being recommended by the CDC. So uh, if you're going by the book, this is what you're supposed to tell a patient. You had a first dose reaction. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Don't get another reaction. Um, we'd like that to say, please see an allergist for evaluation of your risk of receiving a second um, uh, dose. And, and maybe that will change. It's unclear if the deferral is really necessary given a number of alternative approaches and actually limited data that these patients are actually reacting on their second dose. We don't know if it's really a good idea to switch vaccine platforms. That's certainly an option. When you do that now, you're trading other risks, especially in adult patients with blood clots that are happening at a much higher and more appreciable rate than um, anaphylaxis. So again, you know, while it's an option to sort of slide to the right here, it, it, it it may come with its own host of, of problems. So the upshot here is that there is no optimal choice. There are a number of equally bad choices, but some have more benefit than others. And again, talk to your patient. This is not where we should be instilling our values as, as, as the person in charge. This is really where um, <clears throat> we, we need the patient to tell us what they want. And we should be willing to just go forth with what they do. Um, there are a number of unmet needs. I can, again, I'll send this to you. We're running short on time. 
no decision is right for everybody. You, you need to weigh the risk of the reaction versus the risk of treating COVID. I know what I can control and what I would prefer. A hundred out of a hundred times, I'd rather you have anaphylaxis in my office. I can give you EpiPen or epinephrine for that. You'll be okay in about an hour to two hours and you'll go home and you'll be fully immunized. If you get COVID, you could have a very mild infection or you could have a very severe one. And, and again, you know, I don't want to instill my values, but if you ask me what I think you should do, it's going to be, I will fix whatever damage I cause by, by, by treating a reaction that I provoke. You need to weigh the cost to society here. Again, it's about what the patient wants and try not to instill your own values, but you know, this is a suboptimal trade-off in every way, shape or form. Uh, and again, whether you think you can or you can't, you're gonna be right. And it's really ideal for that. So with that, I leave you with a little nostalgia. Um, you probably can't see my hockey stick in the background, but that's my 1981 Hartford Whaler stick that I got when my grandparents took me downtown to the Civic Center uh, to go shopping at the Whaler's store. Again, I have deep ties to the area. My mom graduated from King Philip and my grandmother lived there until she died in 2000. Um, so um, I used to go to the Crown. I know the Farmington area really, really well. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to come back and uh, present. And I apologize for going over a little bit. With that, I will stop sharing and uh, I will answer any questions. I have nowhere to go because it's seven o'clock my time and I stay here as long as you'll keep this open. Uh, thank you, Matt, uh, for a truly, truly fabulous presentation. Very informative. We have, um, I, I know we're running late, but I think this, we, we'll take a, a, the, the questions because I think they're important. So thank you for staying with us, for those who, that are with us. Uh, from uh, uh, Dr. Ratson, uh, Dr. Greenhill, thank you for your talk. There has also been a speculation, also no published papers, of the polysorbate 80 and the various monoclonal antibodies uh, is causing anaphylaxis. Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, this, this is really, I think, the most interesting development here. For a while, we used to see patients who would have, you know, reactions to vaccines that we really couldn't explain. And it wasn't due to an excipient or anything like that. And even corticosteroid, injectable corticosteroid reactions. And it turns out that polysorbate is in a lot of products, but it's also in toothpaste, it's in a lot of food and beverages. I mean, most people don't have a problem with it. So there, the group at Vanderbilt has done a ton of work. So Cosby Stone, Elizabeth Phillips, um, really looking into polysorbate allergy and, and increasing awareness of this. and. I think that there's some, at least some plausibility that it should be investigated. But the problem is, is that there's not a reliable way to test the polysorbate for some of these things. So um, the way that the drug allergy world tends to handle this is, is that, you know, if the risk is perceived to be too high, they tell you not to get this or they desensitize you to it. The testing is evolving, but not there yet. But the short answer is, yeah, there, there is um, some of these reactions that have happened that we can't explain might you know, you might see some literature come out that's attributing this to things like PEG and polysorbate. So that, you know, that, 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 that is a development. Great. Um, I don't know if that's going to stand the test of time. Next question. If someone had a significant but not an allergic reaction to the second dose, uh, such as two or three days of fever and confined in bed, what is the risk for a booster in the fall? Um, so I would classify that as a non-allergic reaction. I had a similar, I, I wasn't in bed for three days. I was in bed for a full day though. Um, yeah, I mean that, that's a risk, you know, that's an immune response and that's probably a beneficial thing to show that your body is, is recognizing that MRNA as not supposed to be there and, you know, you're getting a cytokine response. So I would go ahead and give that person, uh, a, a, another dose, um, without hesitation and just caution them maybe to do it on a Friday where you can sort of 
have the next day in bed and not miss work or something like that or miss school. Another question uh, from one of our pediatricians. What is your recommendation on a young teen with a long life, a very restrictive diet for severe atopic dermatitis, uh, proven, anaphyla and proven anaphylaxis, uh, the majority of unknown etiology, but milk, protein, eggs, not soy as well. No reactions to previous vaccines except never received influenza. I would think that this is a good candidate for the vaccine. I, we, we see nothing with, um, with, with foods and uh, causing a problem here. Um, I, I, I don't think that we're going to see a lot of proof of this previous history of prior anaphylaxis to anything as being that much more of a risk factor. We're recommending all of our food allergic patients get um, vaccinated and we're asking that they go to the standard clinics and not even come to us. So, um, you know, if there's no other way that they will get it then in their allergist office, then so be it. And, you know, maybe for the first year, do it that way. But I, I think they're, they're standard risk um, as, as far as uh, I think any any allergist would, would be concerned. Uh, and I'd also recommend that they get their influenza shot too. Great, thanks. Um, I'm gonna, we're gonna finish here. I'm gonna ask Dr. Factor if he has any final comments and then we'll close. Just want, I, I just want to thank uh, Matt for speaking today, and uh, hopefully, you know, once it, uh, the publication is is accepted, we can have access to the slides. I thought it was really outstanding and provocative discussion, and um, I appreciate you coming, Matt, to come speak uh, to us today. Thank, thank you. you, and I'll make everything available as soon as uh, as soon as I can. I just uh, it's technically embargoed, so um, I apologize for that. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, everyone, for joining. We'll see you on Tuesday for Dr. Billy Yorn's uh, Grand Rounds on Movement Disorders. Please join us then. And then remember, this Friday is uh, Advanced Practitioner uh, uh, sessions that you can log in. And uh, we, we're not going to have the Ask the Experts this Friday, so Dr. Shriver will be on a little bit later. Take care. Be safe. Enjoy the nice summer weekend. Bye-bye. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you. It.